You're listening to the Goop Podcast, made possible by our friends at Keds. Like Goop, Keds is big on championing women. They've always been interested in talking to women, marketing to women, and creating for women. Keds made the first women's sneaker in 1916, and they named it the Champion Sneaker. In the century since, this simple classic shoe has become one of the most recognizable sneakers ever made, and Keds has become an iconic brand. To learn more about their backstory, head to keds.com slash our story. That's keds.com slash our story. And if you're shopping on the Keds site, be sure to plug in code GOOP20 at checkout. That's GOOP20. You'll get 20% off full-priced items when you shop before June 15th. When you are pioneering anything or introducing new ideas to the culture, you get criticized. You do? Yeah. (laughs) Did you hear about that? (laughs) I didn't find the one. I found someone I respected, and we made it the one. In a sort of longing kind of view of love, people understand each other as if by magic. Nothing in itself is addictive on the one hand. On the other hand, everything could be addictive if there's an emptiness in that person that needs to be filled. I now know that nobody changes until they change their energy. And when you change your energy, you change your life. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations. Because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Here we go. Today I'm talking to Brene Brown. Brene is a research professor at the University of Houston and one of the most influential people in our culture right now. Her work on courage, vulnerability, shame, and empathy is fascinating and important. I met Brene in Austin when we were both there for South by Southwest. I asked her a lot about leadership and her latest book, Dare to Lead. I think Brene's advice for how we can lead and live from a place of vulnerability is really salient, and I'm excited to share her tools for doing so. If you put shame in a Petri dish and you give it a little bit of silence, a little bit of judgment, and a little bit of secrecy, it will grow exponentially into every corner and crevice of your life. You have the same amount of shame in a Petri dish and you put a little empathy on it. You've created a hostile environment for shame. It can't survive. So let's get to my chat with Brene Brown. I honestly am so thrilled I've been following you for so long. I have your parenting manifesto, wholehearted mm. parenting manifesto on Go my bulletin board. Oh, I love that. I do. It's so beautiful. You've really you. impacted my life so much. Thank and, you. Um, I can't remember which book it was of yours that I was reading. And you talked about your sliding doors moment. Oh, yeah. From, and I was like, oh, my God, she knows who I am. Like, I was so. <laughs> yeah, I, I wasn't sure who you were up to. Yeah. <laughs> Come on. No, yes, I, I totally knew who you are. And let me tell you, that movie is still to date one of my most favorite movies. You were brilliant in it. Thank you. It's actually a, a really interesting script, that movie, about the the choices that life gives you and those like lefts and rights. And I was really, I was amazed that you had, you know, I was so thrilled you had seen it and that it was had been impactful in some way. Oh, my God. Yeah. And let's say that that haircut is in my hair file. 
<laughs> yeah, it was amazing. What do you think about that? Do you think that we have that much control over our, our destinies? God, you're right up in my fear stuff, like personally. I think we're people of free will. And I think, I don't believe in predetermination very much. Right. But... I don't either. And then yet I have, I do get kind of an existential comfort from thinking like, oh, everything's happening how it's supposed to happen, which I think is sort of the opposite of free will. Would it be fair for me to say I use whichever one brings me comfort at the moment? (laughs) (laughs) So like, you know, there's that quote that's everything's going to be okay. In the end, everything will be okay. If it's not okay, it's not the end. Wow. So that's, that's kind of one. some of that predeterminist, you know, and right. so some days when I'm really in struggle, I'm like, this is what's supposed to be happening. This is happening not to me, but for me, everything's going to be okay in the end. And the other days I'm like, that's the biggest sack of bullshit I've ever heard. And what do I need to be doing to make things okay? Do you know what I mean? So totally. I just like selectively borrow what you need at the time, what I need at the time. What? That's probably awful. But How do you re- No, not at all. How do you remember in those moments? Like, I, I always think, God, I, I went through this really hard thing. And in the moment, I forgot all my tools. Like, I know what I should be telling myself. I always, I really struggle with that, like, building that pause or whatever to say, okay, now I need to kind of implement my tools. You just said, you know, you're talk yourself through, oh, this is happening for my highest good or whatever. Like, how do you get from A to B? It's time and courage, because it, it takes courage to, s- to set the time aside. And I'm really terrible at it. But when I was doing the interviewing for Dare to Lead, one of the things I did notice is the most transformational leaders are not reactive. They respond, they do not react. And I am a reactive person in general. So I'm working on moving from reactive to responsive, but I think a lot of things have to be going right for me to be there. So I have Mm -hmm. to be like eating healthy, sleeping, working out, and I have to be not burnt out or overworked. Do you think that that shift from reactiveness to responsiveness, is that innate? Or do you, when you interviewed all these leaders, were you like, oh, they, they got there to this level of maturity? I think it's yes, and I think some of pe- some people kind of come by it. It's weird. I- I've never talked about this before, but I have this new working theory that's going to be unliked and unpopular, but that's okay. Welcome to my life. Yeah, mine too sometimes. But you know what? Totally, <laughs> totally worth paying that price to do what you love and you believe in, right? Absolutely. You know, like the cheap seats. Go for it, people. Mm-hmm. Um, well, don't go for it right now. I'm really tired. Go okay. for it. Give me like a month. I will. Then go for it. Okay, fine. Oh, not you. You can go for it. But the cheap seat people should hold off for like a month till I'm back on my feet right now. Okay, good idea. Yeah. But I think this is the thing I'm thinking because I work with a lot of CEOs and founders from, you know, from creatives to tech companies, Silicon Valley to Hong Kong oil and gas. And one thing I've learned is some people are wired for the pause. They're wired for the deep breath. And other people are wired to be explosive. And reactive. And a lot of founders I work with are explosive and reactive. Interesting. Mostly male? Both. Both. And they're trying to create a culture where they know that that's not good, but yet they're the founder. And you can't, sometimes you can't extract the founder's personality from a culture. And one of the things that's been really hard for me personally is I am that. And so they always, they have the same 
in our organization that you don't want to be across from Brene in the Brene wind tunnel. I'm never abusive. I never name call or berate people. You know, we have a no shame policy, as you can imagine. Right. But I am intense. I'm emotionally intense. But it's hard. And I am really empathetic about that because that emotional intensity is also what carries us through during hard times. It's what enables me to take risks. It sort of pairs with that. It totally pairs. Right. But I do think you can, I think calm is a practice. I think it's made up of very specific components. Mm -hmm. And I think you can teach yourself. What do you think those components are? Breath is huge. And I've never, I'm a breath holder. And so I've always been very defensive about the breathing thing. And I get pissed off if someone says, Brene, just breathe. Breathe. I fucking hate that. I fucking hate it. I don't know why it's so triggering. It's super, because it's... I guess because I must be a breath holder too, now that I think about it. I think it's, it feels to me, it's probably the right advice, but it feels condescending. It feels patronizing. It is, feels patronizing. And so breath. So it was really funny because when I was interviewing around resilience for Rising Strong, One of the things I found that calm people share in common is breath. And so I'm like, who do I talk to about breathing? So I got a bunch of yoga instructors together and said, tell me about breathing. They're like, Brene, you need to do the box breathing. And I'm like, what is it? And they're like, and they drew a box and they said, in for four, hold for four, out for four, hold for four. So hold for four. Excel for four. And I'm like, oh God, the whole thing pissed me off. I was like, no. But then like a month later, I'm at West Point and I'm talking to active duty military, special forces people about what happens in these high stress environments, life or death. And like, ma'am, it's all about the breath. You're kidding. No. And I'm like, that's a revelation. Yeah. I was like, what? And they're like, it's all about, and the first, my first thought was like, oh my God, the yoga people got to them. Like they knew I was coming and I'm like, what kind of breathing? And they're like, tactical breathing. I'm like, okay, that I can do. What's that? In for four, hold for four, out for four, hold for four. You're kidding me. No shit. (laughs) Yeah. And so calm people do this. So like run up to me and say, oh my God, I hear Gwyneth's really pissed and she may close this whole section. Oh my God, I hear Gwyneth's really pissed and she may close this whole section. Oh my God, you're kidding. Who'd you hear it from? So that is the opposite of calm. That's inflaming. That's fuel of the fire. So try it again. Oh my God, I, I just saw Gwyneth. She's really pissed. She might close down this whole section. So tell me more. Like it immediately diffuses things. So breath, questions, slow. And then the, the two questions calm people ask themselves all the time is, do I have enough data to freak out? And if I do have enough data to freak out, will that help the situation? So when you breathe, does something happen to the autonomic nervous system? Like, do you go from thinking from head to body? Like what, do you know what happens? Yeah. So I think there's a couple things. One thing is if you came up to me and you said, Hey, you know, let's say somebody worked for me and you say, Hey, Brandy's super pissed. And she's thinking about shutting down this whole thing, including our jobs. Like, you can go limbic really quick. You can go fight, flight, parasympathetically freeze. You, you come out of your body. Mm-hmm. You go into kind of this whirling thing. And breath, I mean, we have pet imaging that shows that breath slows down. You re-inhabit your body. Right. You come, the prefrontal cortex comes back online. And the whole thing is keep it online, keep it online. It's so interesting. You know, I'm a real sire. So if if something happens, I sigh. If Are I'm stressed, I sigh. And my kids, like sometimes I'll be at my computer in the kitchen or whatever, and I let out a big sigh. And my kids are like, what's what's wrong? 
And I always say like, oh, I'm just sighing. I'm just, you know, releasing something from my body. And, and I think that because I'm a sire, like there is some kind of a pause built into the sighing. And I think the combination of that and then turning 40 and now being 46, like I, and having been in my business for enough years by pattern recognition, I know that everything's going to be okay. Like what you said, it's either going to be okay or it's not going to be okay. And even if it's not, it actually is going to ultimately be okay. So it's been sort of, I think, part biological and part, but I used to experience a stressful situation or a call from a lawyer or whatever, like a body blow. And I would feel like my adrenals sort of explode. And now I think I'm, this is what I'm trying to cultivate, like this natural sigh. I have like, how can I, so now I'm going to try this tactical yeah. or box breathing. It works. I mean, it, it, it changes, it, it changes inside you. I taught it to my kids for testing in school. That's cool. Yeah, we do it. I mean, like turbulence, I'm not a great flyer. Me neither. Yeah. I feel better if I was driving, but right. they won't let me. But Control issues. Oh, please. There's no podcast long enough to cover all those. Yeah, totally control issues. But I, you know, sometimes I've done it on my leg to the point on a flight where like when I get back to the hotel and I take my pants off, it's like bruised or red. Like wow. I'm like drawn that square like a mother. Wow. Yeah. That's a, that's a good, that, thank you for that tool. I'm going to do that today on my flight home. <laughs> and sighing actually, you know, what's weird that, that they've taught me about breathing in the military and the yoga teachers is one of the biggest mistakes people make is they don't exhale fully. Mm-hmm. And you know how they teach you to do that? Sighing. Oh, interesting. Okay. I think so you're onto something. I may be. Is this something that you would take to you when you talk to your founders and your lead? I'm really curious about sort of the program that you yeah. teach with a leader when, yeah, you're, yeah, yeah. when you're one-on-one. Yeah. Yeah. So I think one of the biggest, most exciting findings probably of my career is that courage is teachable. Four skill sets, observable, measurable, and teachable. We have the 20 years of kind of studying shame, empathy, vulnerability, courage, and then the last seven years teaching leadership very specifically. And really understanding, it was weird because we interviewed 150 who we believed were transformational, courageous leaders. Again, super diverse from community organizers to Fortune 10 companies, military, you name it, we, you know, we did it. And it was the first time in my career as a researcher where the answers that they gave, this was the question we asked, what is the future of leadership? Who will be leading in five years and who will not be leading in five years? And it was the first time answers saturated across all the data. And the answer was brave leaders. Wow. Because of the insatiable demand for innovation technology changes, a volatile, changing sociopolitical landscape. If we do not have courageous leaders, we will not survive. And this is where it kind of got really weird and pissed me off a little bit. I went back in and said, what does that look like behaviorally? Because courage is a great word. It's big. It's wonderful, but it's gauzy, you know? And so 50% of them said, I don't know, you either have it or you don't, which I just knew wasn't true. The other 50% also weren't great at giving me the skill set. Interesting. So when we started digging in and saying, okay, what happens in the opposite of, you know, what happens when you don't have brave leaders? Because this is the thing. This is why I think we have so much to learn from the creative arts. People have no words for what is. They can only tell you what isn't. My whole life, I tell you, I ask you a question, tell me about love. You tell me about heartbreak. 
Tell me about trust. You give me examples of betrayal. We don't have good language for what is. So when I said, you know, what gets in the way of brave leadership, they're like, oh my God, here's a list. People won't have tough conversations. They blame instead of holding people accountable. Right. You know, like they just went on and on. So for me, coming out of that completely changed how I thought of myself as a leader and what I think about leadership. How so? Well, I think the first thing is, you know, the four skill sets, rumbling, rumbling with vulnerability is the first. You have to be able to be vulnerable. Right. You have to be able to this, do that. I'm, this is what I talk about sort of all the time right now as a female founder. When people are asking me questions about it, I, I say, look, like when I started, I had no business becoming a CEO. I, I didn't see myself as a CEO. It took me years to take the courage to step into that role. And, you know, in the beginning, I would be like Googling acronyms under the table Totally. Oh, and, me too. and then finally I was like, fuck it. Like, yeah. this is who I am. This is where I am in the process. And I'm going to choose to be vulnerable and ask questions. And if people think I'm stupid, that's fine. Like, right. I, I want to learn. I want to learn quickly. The best way to do that is to ask questions. Totally. So I've sort of embraced it. But see, that's ex- that. So here's the thing. Four skill sets. Rumbling with vulnerability. Number one. Number two, living into your values. Number three, Braving trust and number four, getting knowing how to reset, learning how to rise after falls and dis, mm-hmm. dis, disappointments, failures. Second so, was values. I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm living notes. into your values. Okay. This is it. I'm getting this workshop for free right now. Totally. You know, I'm taking notes. Totally. So, rumbling with vulnerability is 150 pages of Dare to Lead, and the other three are 150 pages. You don't get to skip rumbling with a vulnerability. And no. I'll, I'll tell you a really powerful story. I spent probably last 15 years trying to just very evangelical about vulnerability and the importance of it because it was such a hard learning for me as a very not vulnerable person and always telling people it's brave. And then one day I was at Fort Bragg working with special forces and I said, vulnerability is uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure. To be vulnerable is to feel uncertain, at risk, and emotionally exposed. Yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah, I mean, that's vulnerability. And I said, can anyone here give me an example of courage that did not require vulnerability? And the troops just went like ashen. They were just like really working hard because they were pissed when I first got there. Like, why did you bring in this woman to talk about vulnerability, you know, in the middle of, you know, we're in active wartime in many places. And then finally, one guy just stood up and said, three tours, ma'am, there is no courage without vulnerability. The next week I was with the Seattle Seahawks, asked them the same question, doing work with Coach Carroll. No, ma'am, no vulnerability, no, no vulnerability, no courage. We think it's weakness. We were raised to believe it's weakness. I know. But there is no courage without it. Why were we raised to see it as weakness? Are there other cultures that don't? Is this a very American quality no, no. or a Western world quality? No, it is global. It's global. It is global. If there are, you know, we had a training in London, I guess, a year and a half ago, and there were 50 countries of origin represented by the participants. And we asked them to stand up and say, what were the lessons that most people from your culture learn about vulnerability? And every one of them in their own language had a saying about how dangerous it is to be vulnerable and how stupid it is. Basically, most of us were raised to believe you want to be vulnerable and put yourself out there. Don't be pissed if you get hurt. Someone breaks your heart, your fault. You know, you're either an asshole or you're a sucker. Wow. You know, don't be the sucker. It's so binary. It's super binary. I think as I get older, I've started to think 
my work can be summed up by one thing. It's probably paradox. You know what I mean? It's it's probably straddling binaries. Like I love it. You know, yeah, yeah, we can be tough and tender, kind and fierce. Absolutely. Clear and kind. But I don't think that we as a culture are good at that. I think we're very good at being black and white yeah. and not embracing how, you know, human beings have equal parts, light and dark. Everything is gray. It's complicated. Totally. There's no, and I think we get very comfortable sitting in one bucket or the other. And it's, and that is where I think actually a lot of shame comes from is this, right? This idea 100%. that we can't be, we can't incorporate all that we are. We have to be one or the other. I call them like stripey people. Like I like stripy people. Like I like people that are light and dark in equal measure and it's all up front. Yes. What I don't like are people who are all sweet. You know, it's the umbrage from Harry Potter, like all sweet and pillbox hat and, you know, pink suits and everything and then stab you when you're not looking. Like light and dark together, integrated. My therapist used to tell me all the time, <laughs> Brene, you need to stop alternating and start integrating because, you know, I would have the, you know, if you came up to me and be like, hey, can you, you know, make cookies for the bake sale? Like, yeah, sure. And then I'd be home in tears four hours later being like, I hope your kids choke on these. You know, like, I hate you. I hate your kids. I hate this school. Like, and so I don't think we're good at the binary. And I got to tell you, managing paradox, I believe, is the key mm-hmm. to not only courageous leadership, but wholehearted parenting mm-hmm. and a full life. Gosh, say more about that. I guess one of the biggest barriers to courageous leadership is the absence of tough conversations. And I think most of us believe that, you know, and then when I go into companies, and this is 90% of the companies I work with will say, we don't have tough conversations because we have a nice culture or a polite culture. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, so if you're pissed off at Gwyneth and you have a nice culture and you won't talk to her about your frustration, what do you do? oh, we talk about her with each other. I'm like, neither nice nor polite. like well, Nor good culture, no, right? And, and toxic to the culture. Very so toxic. Yeah. Gossiping. Yeah. That's why I always encourage people, you know, we have these, these posters. There's a book that I was given a long time ago called The Collaborative Way. And so the tenets of it are, they start with speak straight, <sighs> listen generously, <laughs> include acknowledgement, inclusion, and alignment. It's so... Okay, I love that. Yeah, it's it's a, it's they're really good tenants and so and I and you know, we're all human and we all some have fear around certain things, totally. but we really I really try to encourage that more than anything. Just if you have a problem, go to the person and speak straight. People okay, so here's the problem. And I was just like I was at South by Southwest, I drove home, then I went back to Dallas yesterday to do a conference for 2000 women working in food services. And here's the problem. We say speak straight, tough conversations, candid conversations. That's like someone saying to me, Brene, you have a million miles on United. Can you fly us home tomorrow? I get that I'm supposed to do that. I do not have that skill set. And people don't understand it's a skill set. We have these things called rumble starters. There's like five or six just phrases that you can use to start a hard conversation. Oh, wow. Yeah. So what are they? Off the top of my head, help, well, my, I'll, I'll tell you my favorites. Okay. So help me understand. Mm-hmm. And not... Hey, you fucked this up. Help me understand. No, like no. more like can, let, let's talk. Help me understand. Right. Walk me through this. Mm-hmm. But the biggest one that I think has saved my marriage, mm-hmm. my leadership, and my parenting is the story I'm telling myself because that is just neurobiology. That's just a neurobiology hack. Because when something hard happens, 
Our brain is wired for survival and it begs for one thing above all else and that's a story. If you give the brain a story, it rewards you chemically with calm and it will reward you regardless of the accuracy of the story. So how do you implement that in parenting? Well, oh my God, there's so many examples. So one of the things that I have a daughter who's 19, a son who's 13. And I have a son who's 13. It's so fun, isn't it? It's amazing. It's I mean, the greatest. It's just, I mean, it was yesterday I was talking to him and he goes, I'm going to learn a song. He's play, plays a, he plays a guitar. I'm going to learn a song for your birthday. It was in November. And I was like, good. I want you to learn Towns Van Zandt if you needed me. And he goes, oh, that's really courty, mom. <laughs> I was like, I'll take uh He's like, I already did Bon Jovi for you. I was like, <laughs> but I mean, I just, I love it. In fact, I had to say when I was coming here, I was like, <laughs> I had to put you in character to tell him who I was coming. He's like, will Iron Man be there? I'm like... <laughs> He's in the other room. He's just lying down. <laughs> He's like, you're going to meet her. I was like, yeah. Oh, he was very excited. God, I love I every love age it. I've loved. And my 19-year-old daughter, she's a sophomore in college. And it's just... So when we make up a story, when when our brain says, I feel anxiety, I feel fear, something's going on with you, you're emotionally triggered by something, I can protect you if you give me a story. The problem is that if you give it a story like, wow... Gwyneth was, Gwyneth's pissed. I can tell by the look on her face in the meeting. If I give it a story like, I'm not sure what's going on with her. Maybe it's not about me. I get no comfort from my brain. My brain wants a story that says dangerous, safe, good, bad. Right. Binary. Binary. And the brain works on binary. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, it's not like, we wouldn't be sitting here if it was like, is this tiger nice? Yeah. Is this a vegan tiger? Maybe he's in a bad mood. I don't know. Run, invite him to tea. (laughs) Who knows? Like, it doesn't work. So the problem is that the story we make up normally exaggerates our greatest fears, shame, triggers, and insecurities. So a lot of times when you've got teenagers and even preteens, when they see the Instagram post and all their friends are together, it's, you know, they make up a story about why they're not there. And so teaching them, what's your shitty first draft? I mean, some people, stormy first draft for kids, but not my kids would be like, they would call me out on that, but they, same, yeah. So the, what's your shitty first draft? So you say that to your kids? Yeah. Oh, um, all the time. Amazing. Like if, if my kid said something like, everybody gets this in algebra but me. I'm the dumbest one in the class. Like, that sounds like a shitty first draft. How do we reality check that? No, it's just true. Can I reality check it with your teacher if you won't? Yeah, but don't use my name. I'm like, well, that's not going to work. Like, I can't go in incognito. But And then so one time, this was a story with one of my kids. And they said, everyone gets that but me. And I said, can we reality check the shitty first draft? And he said, yeah. And so I sent an email and I showed him the email. And he said, yeah, we're redoing the lesson. No one passed that test in the class. So helping them understand that those stories that we make up Hmm. are... You know, or even just like Ellen in high school showing me a picture on Instagram. I'm saying, look at all these people. And I'm like, that's a J. Crew ad. You know, that's, that's, you don't even know those people, but this is what everybody's doing tonight. Like, that's what the J. Crew people are doing right. on a photo shoot right. like a month ago. Like, what is a story you're making up? Yeah. And so now my kids will say, can we talk about something? I'm making up a bad story. Oh my God, that's so great. It's huge. You've given them such an amazing way and of framing things. And it's so easy. Things. And I have to tell you that Steve and I whipped that sentence out with each other in a hugely painful shame storm fight here in Austin at Lake Travis probably seven years ago. And I don't think we've had a fight since Wow. where we have not said, here's what I'm making up. That's great. I really appreciate that. I'm going to use that. Oh my God. And it's disarming. It's vulnerable. 
So when you say rumble with vulnerability, Uh like I love that. I love what that conjures Mm -hmm. because rumble, it's so like we're tough, we're on the street, like we're in a rumble, like we're not, it's sort of bringing courage to the vulnerability, right? Is that what you mean by it? Yeah. And it's, you know, it's very, it's for me, if I say, hey, Gwyneth, we're going to have a rumble at five o'clock about the new partner contract, what that, it is a signal. It's an indicator for an intention setter for everyone that gets invited to that, that bring a point of view, know that we're not going to tap out of a hard conversation and know that we're going to have a real discussion on, you know, gritty facts, gritty faith about what the decisions are that we're making. And so when people say, Hey, we got a rumble. And then we, the two words we use is a rumble. What is the, why can't I think of the play? West Side Story. West Side, yeah, that's where I got it. Yeah. It's balletic. It's yes, tough. But yes. it's also, we're all going to walk out of it. And it's an exploration. It is. Right? Ex- it's totally. It's not. Yeah, we got to rumble It's like, on I'm going to see how far I'm going to get yeah. with this. Yeah. And the other one is to circle back. So I might say to you, hey, Gwyneth, can we circle back about the meeting yesterday? And you're like, sure. And say, I don't like how I showed up, how I showed up yesterday. You know, like you put this idea on the table. It was brave to do that. I think it's actually a great idea. And I'm in a lot of fear and scarcity. And I think I was shitty. So I apologize. Gosh, I mean, talk about bringing vulnerability into a work culture. Like if somebody came and said that, that's astonishing. That's beautiful. We have them every day. And we have them systemically, which is key. So how do you teach that? Like if I said, Brene, please come to Goop. Like we've got, we've grown really quickly and I'm, you know, I'm always struggling with culture. Yeah. How, how would you tell me to implement that? How do you get people like practicing from a place of vulnerability at work? So we can teach it. We need two full days. And, and, here, and here's what I would tell you. I would tell you what I tell like the many, many people who are calling now and have called since Dare to Lead came out. We can do it. We've got people trained to do it. I can do it in some rare circumstances. Here's what you have to do. You have to be willing to invest in it. And that's time and resources. I need two days. And we will certify everyone in Dare to Lead, meaning we will we will guarantee you at the end of the two days that people have the skill sets to do this. I'll cut this out, but how much does it cost? <laughs> if I were coming to you, you could pay me in dry brushes. <laughs> I'm addicted to my goop dry brush. <laughs> I am. It is. And whatever. I don't know what my goop stuff is in my shower. It's white and it says something clay. Oh, the the marine, the yeah, glacier yeah, clay, yeah. the detox <laughs> clay. Pay you in flying. <laughs> yeah, no. Um, I really want to do this. Oh, yeah. It's, it's, it's so, it's so changing. Like we have been into companies, even in, in, like including Air Force bases. And Amazing. I was just at the Air Force Academy and the most resistant people are shifted because they have a skill set. Like we do role plays. You're sitting down and saying. Amazing. Yeah. I love that so much. It's just teachable. And so right. the thing that's big for me now is if you are a leader and not just of an organization, because maybe, you know, that you're a founder and a leader of an organization, but some people just a team and you're opting out of teaching courage skills, you're making a choice. Mm-hmm. Don't piss and moan. You know, like this is a choice, right? These you're are, an adult. Yeah. And these are skill sets right. and you can learn them and they're hard and vulnerability. You got to embrace the suck mm-hmm. of vulnerability, but it's essential. When I was, I closed my, I closed the company a couple times a year. I closed between Christmas and New Year's yeah. and then we closed for two weeks in August. It's always like my time when nobody's emailing and nobody's on Slack or whatever. And yeah. you really get a time to sort of daydream about your business and, and this past Christmas, 
I was kind of ruminating on my past year and sort of trying to take inventory of how I was as a leader and what I could do better. And I had this realization that, you know, we have this culture centered around speaking straight. And I realized that it's really, it's gotten much easier for me to speak straight when I'm already frustrated. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I'm not like, you asshole, you do right. X, Y, and Z. Right. But I feel a fire because yeah. now I'm like kind of pissed. So, and then I, I use my tools and I sit down to have like a straight conversation with somebody. And I thought, gosh, I wish I could speak straight before I'm frustrated. Mm. Oh my God. Huge. So how do Life I, changing. how do I do that? Because I'm so, I get so, I don't know if it's because I'm a woman. I don't know if it's like the way I was socialized, but I never feel like I have a right to have a difficult conversation unless I'm already frustrated. So I think, I mean, I do the same thing. I think a lot of people do, and it it, it could be gendered in a way. I but But I have to say guys struggle with it a lot as well. Mm-hmm. I think it is about grounded confidence. It is about you're relying on the fuel of anger to push you through right. fear. Right. It's like it gives you the courage. That's related to where we kind of started, where it's probably not always as helpful. It's more reactive than it is responsive. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that's where it goes back to the binary. You can you can have a concern that has not escalated to a frustration and address it at that point. And it is far, and I'll tell you why. If you call me in and it's not a frustration yet, but it's a concern, it's a flag. And you say, hey, I'm kind of flagged by this. And I know it's early on, but can you walk me through what your thinking is? I want to make sure that we stay aligned from the beginning. It is, first of all, just in 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 cost and dollars and time yeah. and energy and effort. It's huge. But one of the things I noticed is for those of us that do that, time is also an issue. So we see we see a flag, I'm busy. We see two flags, I'm still busy, they'll figure it out. Now we see enough flags, you know, for a parade and now we're pissed and now we're gonna do it. So it's a time investment as well. And that's, that's discipline. Right, right, right. That's discipline. For me it's more I think fear of, of, uh, how can I articulate it exactly? I'm so worried about saying something that's hurtful. And so my default is like, oh, I'll just excuse that. Or, you mm-hmm. know, I'm sure it was just, and then when it's like, the, it happens the third time, I'm like ape shit. Yeah. So here's the thing that really changed me doing this research. Clear is kind, unclear is unkind. That's so good. Yeah. And so, yeah, clear is kind. And so can can we work through an example for people listening? Because it could be really helpful. So let me think of, let me try to think of an example. I'm going to walk in. This is kind of like, this is kind of a big example, but I found myself over the last, do you ever find yourself, this is a really terrible thing, but do you ever find yourself saying, I wish I could just hire another me? I said that actually last week. Someone was like, can I get you anything? And I was like, yeah, could you just clone me real yeah. quick? And, yeah. Right? Yeah. Or fuck it, I'll just do it myself. So I found myself saying those things a lot over the last six months as things have really kind of shifted and there's a lot of exciting new stuff happening, but it's also big lift. Yeah. And so one of the things that happened is I asked my team to post something for me on LinkedIn 
And I just said, hey, can y'all do that for me? And then they said, you know, they're like, sure. And then two days later, it wasn't there. And I was like really frustrated. Mm -hmm. But I saw it the day before and it wasn't there. But I was busy, but now I'm pissed. And so I sat down with them and I said, help me understand. Mm -hmm. And they said, well, you told us to post it. And we, you know, we normally post on Thursdays and it was Tuesday. So we just waited. And I said, do you understand the consequence of not posting that? Because I can't post that now for these reasons. And they're like, no, we don't understand. And I was like, shit, I'm so mad. This is where I wanted another me because another me would understand. And then I finally said, these are two things that will really revolutionize your leading is moving forward. I'm going to tell you what done looks like. And I'm also going to tell you the five C's. What's the color, the context, the connective tissue, the cost and consequence. And it's going to take me two extra minutes, but I have very few frustrated conversations now. Wow. So now what I say is like, let's say if you said, hey, can you post that on LinkedIn for me, Brene? So yeah, can you, (laughs) that's hilarious. (laughs) Brene, could you post this on LinkedIn for me? Yeah, sure. What does done look like, Gwyneth? Uh Uh-huh. And then you said, well, Done is, it's up, this is the caption, it's up by this date and time. Can you paint done for me? Can you give me some more color? Yeah, I'm wanting to do it today because I don't want to do it right up against another post. It's International Women's Day. I'm going to go Mm. up with something else there. And we need to give breathing space for these things because people are going to have a lot of questions. And Mm -hmm. I want to, you know, there's a whole paragraph that goes under, can you just do that while I'm running? Mm -hmm. So one of the things that's limited my easy frustration talks is having people paint done what does done look like, and giving people color and context. Amazing. So that's really big. The other thing is I use the five C's now at the frustrating point, not the pissed off point. So I'll say, hey, can you, can you, can we talk for a few minutes? I want to rumble on what you put in front of me yesterday, the deliverable. So I'm not pissed off yet, but I'm like a little frustrated, but I don't want to hurt your feelings because mm-hmm. I know you're working hard on it. Mm-hmm. I read it and I think it's it's starting to really take shape, but I want to give you the five C's and make sure you have everything you need to be successful because here's what done looks like for me. Mm. Okay. And the five C's are color, context, connective tissue, cost and consequence. And let me tell you how that changes culture too. If I say to you, will you post on LinkedIn and you're my social media manager, I have completely stripped your job of any connective tissue to our greater purpose and mission. Mm, interesting. You're just a you're just a post putter upper, as opposed to here's why it's important. Here's the connective tissue. Here's the cost of not doing it, and here's the consequence of why we do. That's it. like the include and align piece that we have, but but it doesn't go to the cost and cost. The wait is over. That's right. Season five of the Kardashians is here. Just when you thought life couldn't get any faster, they're punching it into overdrive. Chris, Courtney, Kim, Chloe. Kendall and Kylie are back and continue to defy expectations in all their endeavors. So get ready to go behind the glitz and glamour of the most iconic family on television. The all new season of the Kardashians premieres May 23rd, streaming on Hulu. Consequence. We're going to take a quick break and then we'll get back to Brene. I love the moment of walking into the venue on the day of our wellness summit in Goop Health. It still feels a little surreal to see this big dream brought to life. 
We've had a lot of fun opening moments over the past several summits, but I think the team really nailed it at our last event in New York. We worked with Keds to create a shoe wall and everyone got a pair of sneakers to wear as they walked in the door. We've been really excited to partner with Keds for a couple of reasons. They've been making products for women for much longer than we have, since 1916 in fact, when they made their first women's sneaker aptly named Champion. Since Keds introduced their Champion sneaker, a lot of women have become devotees of the brand. What we also find interesting about Keds is that the company is 88% female, and their leadership team is made up entirely of women, which is similar to the DNA and makeup of Goop today. You can learn more about Keds at keds.com slash our story. That's keds.com slash our story. And you can get 20% off full priced items while shopping on Keds if you enter Goop20. That's Goop20 for 20% off if you shop before June 15th. Okay, let's get back to Brene Brown. I just wanted to go back to one question where you sort of connected shame and leadership. Mm -hmm. I think we all feel shame to varying degrees, right? And it's something that, and it's funny because somebody asked me really, what is at some point, what is your mission here with the content on Goop? And I was like, really, I guess ultimately we're trying to, by creating a forum and opening up conversations, potentially difficult or uncomfortable conversations. Like we're trying to eliminate shame for women. Yeah. Like, oh, someone else is going through this. Someone else feels this way. Someone else has this thing, whatever. So creating that. And obviously for me, and I think a lot of women, hopefully not our daughters, but definitely in our generation, I think part of the reason that I've so motivated is like my response to shame in a way and sort of trying to convince myself that the things I feel ashamed of are like I'm going to outdo them in some way, yeah, right? Like yeah. I'm going to prove to Outsmart my... It. And so it started to occur to me, like it's great to be motivated. It's great to be an achiever, but I'm sort of wrestling right now with what part of this is healthy? What part of this is unhealthy? Like how much is my shame driving my perfectionism, which I... Right, I'm, if you could see the look on Brene's face right now, just like... <laughs> my look says a lot, yeah. And so in terms of how it affects leadership. Like, I wonder what that, what is the kind of kernel of that, you know, fiercely motivated, like, is it coming from shame? Are perfectionists all full of shame? Is that we are? Okay. Yeah. Look at that. Yeah. 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 Look, you're like, look at that. No, like, so a couple of <laughs> things I want to say, like the mission of goop and you didn't use this word, but I'll use this word and you can tell me whether it's the right word or the wrong word, but normalizing. Right. Exactly. And that, and we know that normalizing, normalizing and empathy are the two greatest anecdotes to shame. And so when you read something where you're like, at what age do you start plucking the hairs on your chin? You mean like, and you think, oh my God, I thought I was the only one. And why do I only see them when I'm in the car looking in the rearview mirror? <laughs> and you, and there's a funny article about that on Goop or something. Right. Then you're like, oh my God, other people have this. Other people have right. this. And like, to, as a shame researcher, I can tell you that there is no body, mind, soul, emotion, physical, smell thing that is not shared by all of us, you know, and so the normalizing piece is really helpful. So perfectionism is a function of shame. So I, I, I thought so. Then that and that terrible. Yes, I, I hate it. Yeah, no. So I always tell people where perfectionism is driving you shame is riding shotgun. Mm. And so 
perfectionism, it's interesting because as a research construct, the opposite of perfectionism is healthy striving or striving for excellence. So perfectionism is really almost like a process addiction. So what it says is if I look perfect, act perfect, and work perfect, I can avoid or minimize shame, judgment, criticism, and blame. Interesting. But the problem is that, you know, as a very self-professed recovering perfectionist, I can tell you that I never managed no matter how perfect I tried to get things to avoid those experiences. But the problem with perfectionists is that when we ultimately experience criticism or blame or judgment, our self-talk isn't, oh, fuck perfectionism, that doesn't work. Our self-talk is, I wasn't perfect enough. And we double down. And so I call shame the 20-ton shield. It's a defense mechanism, very classic, that we carry in order to protect ourselves from getting hurt. But what it actually does is protect us from being seen. And it's very important to understand as a leader and a parent is it's one of the most contagious behaviors around the people we lead and our children. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it's almost like... God, I never would have made that connection. I thought I always think of shame as so personal. No, it's... Shame is a social construct. It's how I see myself through your eyes. Right. And so it requires a social balm, which is empathy, normalizing, knowing I'm not alone, reality checking the messages. And so in leadership, what's interesting, and this was both a great finding and a very hard personal finding, <laughs> it's not fear that gets in the way of courageous leadership. It's armor. It's how we self-protect and one of the biggest self-protection tools is perfectionism. And it can really crush a culture. I mean, I always think about parenting and perfectionism. And I always think, you know, just line your kids up and put the little straight jackets on them right now. If that's what you're modeling. And if your fear places, you know, if you say, if your child comes to you and says, I wasn't invited over to John's party. Mm. Well, what did you do? Yeah. Well, are you hanging out with the cool kids? I mean, like what, you know, like it just is so contagious. So it, what do you say in that scenario? I go Pema children on that scenario. Like I go that compassion is not a relationship between the wounded and the healer. It's a relationship of equals. It's knowing your darkness well enough to sit in the dark with others. So that's Pema children. And I always, when my kids are sitting in the dark, I do everything in my power to not flip on the light and just sit with them in the dark and teach them that it's okay to be in the dark. So I just sit down with them and say, that's tough. Is that something you really wanted to go to? Yeah. Like all the, all the guys on my team are going, I know how that feels. That feels hard. You want to talk about it? Like I don't rush because it's like a lot of, you know, I hate this word and I'm like, maybe I'm not going to use it. I hate that word, so I'm not going to use. I whispered it to her. Yeah, yeah, no, I don't like it because it's super gendered. But it's a lot of behaviors where we are caretaking for others, and one of the things I've realized about caretaking for others is it's inherently selfish. I'm flipping on the light not because it's good for Charlie or Ellen, because it makes me more comfortable. Right? Because it's so painful painful. when it's your children. It's like ten times worse than when you weren't invited to the party in seventh grade. Oh, give it to me. Give it to me times a million. But take my kid out of it. Right. And I've seen, like, I've seen real, you know, how old is your oldest? She'll be 15 in May. 15 in May. And so, oh, yeah. It's yeah. hard right now. It's just amazing to me how much being a parent 
reveals about what you still have unhealed. Oh my God. It's, it's such a disaster. Crazy. It is. I'm like, I'm so much more fucked up than I thought I was. No. And I thought I was really fucked up. Yeah. But, you know, being there and witnessing their ups and downs and trying to course correct and not parent out of instinct, you know, parent out of consciousness. Like, okay, what am I trying to create here as opposed to like what was done to me and I'm just doing the same. That's it. And that instinct is usually the habit. And so, oh my God, yeah. I always say the hardest thing about parenting a 15-year-old or a 13-year-old is the 15-year-old and 13-year-old in us. That is sweaty palmed, heavy tray, looking for a place to sit at lunch. Oh God. And yeah. And so we just go straight to I I die. I die. Like when my son if he feels left out yeah. or you know, I I, I can't even explain the feeling. I'm, yeah. All mothers know it, I guess. All mothers of thirteen year olds know <laughs> we it. We know it, but it's like I go <laughs> like I go to this crazy place. Like I go to like fuck that. I know the Jonas brothers are fans of my work and I'm going to call them and ta- have them take Ellen to the party. And then like, I go like, no, I go crazy. Like, like, I don't know the Jonas brothers. I wouldn't, if they walked in here and said, and started singing, I wouldn't know who they were. Sometimes I've caught myself going to a place of like ragging on the kid. Oh yeah. I'm like, who are you? Yeah. I'm like that, that loser. Oh yeah. No. Oh yeah. I like, I'll beat the shit out of that. Little <laughs> yeah. Like I'm talking about another 15 year old. Like, like, no. It is totally the same. <laughs> my, kids, my kids always say I'm the same psycho. thing. They're like, back down, mama bear, back down. But but the thing is, I can't do that when they're in struggle because then it becomes about me and my crazy behavior. Right. So I just try to, you know, I, and I have to put myself into a trance. This is not something I come by normally. Mm-hmm. I have to go sit in the dark. I'm writing that down Sit too. in the dark. And because the whole problem with the world, starting with like the White House down, mm-hmm. is we are so much better at causing pain mm-hmm. than staying and feeling our own pain. I know. And like, I have to teach my kids how to sit in that. Yeah. It sounds like you have. It sounds like they have incredible capacity to sit sit with it. Oh, I mean, because, yeah, I mean, they. I think they have more than I do. And that's, yeah. that's, and that's I'm going to take that yeah. as a win and hope. It's funny because... We talk about like habitual, what's the habitual response or the like the ingrained response. And I remember when I was writing my first book on shame and I came from a very shame bound family, like, yeah, just hard. And we just had looks, you know, like just a look knew you weren't enough mm-hmm. around something or you had to change something. And so my dad read the book. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And I say, he said, first of all, I was like, damn, sis. He's a lawyer. He's like, you know, you got to put that in the LLC because that's dangerous stuff in there. Like, I'm like, we're good, dad. He goes, <laughs> and he said, that's tough. You know, like, I, I think, I think we did use some shame. Like, yeah, I think so. And I was like, yeah. And I said, was it hard for you to read? And he goes, it was. And he said, but the only thing, you know, here's what a good parent is. And I was like, what? And he goes, a good parent is, I hope to hell you do a better job than I did. And I'll support you in every way I can in doing that. That's so nice. Which is so great because so many parents take every effort we make to mm. do it differently mm. as direct criticism. Do you know what I mean? I do. She's shaking her head. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And it's not, it's just like we know better, do better. Right? right. Yeah. And to be fair, my mother's always so supportive of that, of like, yeah. if she sees me parenting and she says like, Oh, I wish I, could have known to 
you know, phrase it that way or yeah, something like that, exactly. which is really supportive and, and sweet. Before I forget to ask you, so just as a quick tutorial, if you see your child in a shame spiral, mm-hmm. what do you do? How do you help them out of it? Well, the elements of shame resilience are to recognize shame and know what got you there. Reality check the messages and the expectations that drove it. Talk about it and use the word shame. Like that, that's what we found. Men and women who have the highest levels of shame resilience, recognize that you're in it. Name the trigger. Reality check the expectation because normally they're unattainable bullshit expectations. Mm-hmm. Talk about it and use the word shame. Mm-hmm. Shame cannot stand being spoken. Shame thrives only because it convinced you you're alone. So if you can use the word shame, like if I call you and I'm like, hey, Gwyneth, it's Brene. Oh my God, something so embarrassing happened at work today. That is so different than, hey, Gwyneth, it's Brene. I'm in so much shame about something at work. That's where you you will respond by saying something like, I'm in the middle of something. I need to give you my uninterrupted time. Can you wait 30 minutes? I'll call you back. As opposed to like, you're jogging and talking to me. Embarrassment, shame, different things. Guilt, different. Humiliation, even different. So I think one of the things that I've done with my kids is we use the word. Ah, oh, that to me, like that is the idea of that is excruciating. And therefore, I'm going to force myself to start doing it. No, you say, I say, like my kids will say, I'm in a shame storm. I'm in a shame storm. Or I'll say, yeah, I'm in a shame spiral right now. Mm. And you could add something to it to make it more accessible. Like sometimes I'll say I'm in a shame shit storm. <laughs> like, yeah, like I'll just say that. But my kids will say, I'm in a shame storm. Right. And when my son was little, he would say, here's what critical Charlie's saying. Interesting. Yeah. And so you got to name it. And then let's reality check the expectations. And it doesn't work if you're if you're my daughter. And I'm like, okay, Gwyneth, why do you think you need to be that way to be okay? Mm-hmm. And let me reality check that for you. That doesn't work. I need you to reality check it. Do you think that's true? Do you think that's real? And then I always say, because I'm a feminist mom, who do you think financially benefits from you believing that? <laughs> Which I do, you know, who, you know, what industry, on what industry, you know, are we helping out with this belief? And so, yeah, but I think my kids will name the emotion Mm -hmm. because let me tell you something. You can't say shame. Shame loves you, but you wrap words around shame. Shame cannot literally neurobiologically shame cannot survive being spoken. If you put shame in a Petri dish and you give it a little bit of silence, a little bit of judgment and a little bit of secrecy it will grow exponentially into every corner and crevice of your life. You have the same amount of shame in a Petri dish and you put a little empathy on it. You've created a hostile environment for shame. It can't survive. That's so brilliant. And it makes perfect sense. Again, social construct, social bomb. So I have a question for you, which is what happens to the relationship to shame. This is sort of a complicated question in that like, for example, at Goop, we talk about things sometimes that people perceive as controversial, which I think is insane because like real controversy is not like a woman talking about her sexual health. Right. That's for another day. But so a lot of times I feel like we're in the position of having to defend, right? Like, no, this was our intention or, Hey, let's have a look at the patriarchy. Why is the status quo upset by this? You know? So we're sort of coming at something with, I guess, like in the most reductive way, defensiveness, right? Because you're 
coming at something. Yeah. So what happens? It can shame hide under defensiveness. Like, cause sometimes I think, oh, I'm, you know, we're defending something. And if there's a part of this that's true or that's resonating, like I'm not dealing with it because I'm dealing with mm-hmm. being in a defensive stance and defending what's totally. Coming. Do you know what I'm trying to oh, ask? I know exactly what you're saying because you are, are you winning the external war, but losing the internal right. war? Yeah. And is shame that crafty? Oh God, the craftiest of foes, the craftiest. Sometimes I think part of the reason my life is so complex is because shame is that crafty. <laughs> no, it is. Know. It's, you know, they call it, a lot of sociologists call it the master emotion. Yeah, of course. Because I mean, if you leave it unchecked, it can make every decision in your life. Every, and it does for many, many, many people. And you'll start to see it. You're several years younger than I am, but you'll start to I don't think that's s- true. Huh? I don't think that's true. Oh yeah, I'm 53. What? Yeah. Who's your doctor? Yeah. You are... So gorgeous. Are you 53? I'm 53. My daughter, my doctor's Venters. Yes. Yeah. I'm a big fan. So am I. Yeah. I love it. It's all use. That's awesome. Yeah. And shame free living, sister. Yes. Well, exactly. That shit will wrinkle you faster. And probably than... you don't smoke or drink or drink caffeine. So wait. So I got to get on your whole train. Well, I've been here. sober for like 22 years. Yeah. But look, see, I think this is like whiskey wrinkles, I think. I, I don't trust anyone without some whiskey wrinkles and some okay. cigarette lines. Fine. Then I feel good about myself. Yeah, I, I really don't. <laughs> yeah. And I try to tell you the day that they think if they come up with a safe cigarette, count me in. Just, no. Or when I'm 80, I'm on it. Like, oh, my God. <laughs> me too. I'm I'll on be it. back on that. We'll smoke together and talk on the podcast. <laughs> like that. It'll be so fun. No, I think it's really important for the culture that when you have to go into a defensive position, first of all, that you're aligned with everyone about taking a defensive position. Mm-hmm. Because sometimes, like, let's say I'm cupping my hands in front of me like I'm taking communion. Like, here's shame. Do we bring it in and then defend against it? Or do we make a decision that we're actually not going to defend against it? And then if you do have to defend against it, you have to rally the troops internally and say... We're just going to do some shame busting. Yeah. Anyone in here have shitty first drafts, have stories, have shame things that we need to work out about this. We mm-hmm. just took a lot of hits. And we and we do it a lot. We call it courage alerts in our business. So I'll, in my organization. So I'll go out with something where I think I take a very reasonable humanistic stand on a political issue. And then I get death threats. The people that work for me get death threats that, you know, y'all are, you know, those kind of things. So we have to have a real courage alert where we come together, usually at the bar in the kitchen in our organ- and say, is everyone clear on why we're doing this? What it means? Is it, do we agree that it's aligned with our values? Sometimes we'll talk it through and some people will say it's aligned with our values, but the messaging's off. And so I do absolutely think that ongoing hostile shame fire Mm. it takes a toll on people and cultures do you think that there is a shame piece to how divided we are as a country right now for sure because you know i i don't think it's my place to necessarily use my platform to talk about politics it's never been yeah but even more now because I feel like we've lost the ability to listen with any degree of openness. Yeah. No matter what side you're on. No. Yeah, for sure. 
And so I'm just wondering, is there an antidote to that? Like, first of all, how does shame play into that? And do you think there's an antidote? Yeah. And I think the antidote, I do think that antidote is the same on the micro or macro level. I think the micro antidote is empathy. And I think the macro antidote is more empathy, more listening, more hearing, more seeing ourselves in other people's eyes and stories. Mm -hmm. Shame has just become a tool. And it's always been a tool of oppression. But now it's become, some people are picking it up and using it as a social justice tool. And I'm just not for it. I'm just not for it. Yeah. And so shame is a social justice tool. Accountability. Oh, hell yes. Like you say something, you do the opposite. You say you care about families, but yet you, you know, take kids away from their parents at the border. I'm going to hold you accountable for that. But I'm not going to shame you as a human being because when we start dehumanizing each other, to the degree where that is normalized, then we are in such a dangerous place because dehumanization through language has been the start of every genocide in recorded history. So when I don't see you as a person, I see you as a thing. And I don't care who the subject of your contempt is. Right. And I'm not going to take on the behaviors of the people whom I most passionately disagree with. You know? Right. So right. I do think we live in a very shame-based culture. And there's a lack of empathy. It's driven by fear. It's really fascinating. You know, I wonder what can be done. And I guess, I mean, I guess it's why I'm grateful that you're doing this and that your life's work is around talking about these things. And that also, you know, you're talking about your books. You sell the shit out of those books. <laughs> I do. So I do sell the shit out of those books. And yeah, <laughs> it's super, yeah, it's super exciting. So in talking about getting your content out into the world, I hear you have a Netflix show that's coming is that out. So- You're the first person to say it to me. I'm so excited. Tell me all about it. What is it called? When is it coming on? It's just weird. I'm a researcher and a college professor. You're famous. No, I'm not. Yes, you are. Um, I'm sorry. Your message is so resonant. Look what happened. You did this TED Talk. And we all know the story about how you thought you bombed this TED Talk. And it's like the most famous TED Talk of all time. And now you have all these best-selling books. We're all so thirsty for what you have to say. And this is a natural evolution. I mean, you are you have a Netflix show. I do. It's so weird. <laughs> I just don't. I wasn't, I've never seen anyone else say it. Um, What's it called? It's called uh, The Call to Courage. And it comes out when? April 19th. And what is the format? I'm like on stage giving a lecture. Amazing. Yeah, it's weird. It's like uh, Netflix is exploring this new kind of channel. Like, you know, they've they've done a lot of fact-based entertainment. Like, they're great in documentaries. I mean, yeah. that's where we go to for nonfiction storytelling. And so this is kind of a new channel around thought leadership. And it's crazy. Is it is it you on stage? Is it intercut with? No, it's just me giving one of my talks on vulnerability and courage to a live audience that we filmed in LA. Amazing. It's, How long is it? I think it's an hour. And did you have cue cards or did you, uh-uh. me- you memorize the whole thing? No, I don't memorize. I don't, oh. I just do it. Is there like a Q and a component or Mm-mm. it's just a lecture? No, it's a, it's a talk on, it's weird. Cause I think when you see it, it looks like a comedy special. <laughs> That's a good thing. <laughs> a funny thing happened to me on the way to work. Like, I don't know. <laughs> what does that mean? I don't know. But it's, it is a new channel for them. And they asked me if I wanted to, you know, be the first to try it. I, our number, we have three values at, you know, in our organization. The first is be brave. The second is serve the work. And the third is take good care. And so we thought this is an exciting way to serve the work and get it out there Heck in the world yeah. in a big way. I'm so excited. And, I'm I'm, and I love that Netflix 
is thinking about content content in so many diverse ways. Yes. And understanding that there are so many different types of viewers. And like, I cannot, I literally cannot wait to see this special of yours. I think it'll be fun because I think it'll be something that, you know, parent groups can get together and watch and talk about in relationship to parenting or like your book club could watch it or we could, you could show it at an organization for culture work. How amazing. I'm excited about it. I'm so happy for you. Thanks. And I'm so grateful that you came to be on our podcast. Oh my God, thank you. I just admire you so much. Thank you. And you've really had such an incredibly positive impact on my life. So thank you. Oh my gosh. Thank you for having me. And it's, it's absolutely right back at you. It is such a joy to meet you. I love what you're doing. And you know what I love the most? No matter what's going on on the inside, I think what you have modeled to us is some fierce, unapologetic power owning. And there is not enough of that. And I want my daughter and my son to see some of that. Well, thank you. Thank you for listening to my chat with Brene Brown. You can learn more about her work at brenebrown.com. And all of her books are brilliant, including her latest, Dare to Lead. That's a wrap. Thanks for listening to the Goop Podcast. We hope you'll be back next week on Tuesday and Thursday. To keep up, tap subscribe. And please let us know what you think. You can rate, review, or hit us up on social. For more, just head to goop.com slash the podcast. 